0: Welcome to Strike Talk. By 1598, William Shakespeare was what we might call a hot writer. He'd written The Merchant of Venice, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Taming of the Shrew, and Romeo and Juliet, among others. He and his company, called Lord Chamberlain's Men, had a home at a theater in Shoreditch called, funnily enough, The Theater. That year, though, the theater's landlord, Giles Allen, decided to cancel their lease. Shakespeare had no home and no idea what to do about it. But an entrepreneur affiliated with the company, Cuthbert Burbage, did. Burbage realized that while the landlord did indeed own the land that the theater was sitting on, he did not own the theater itself. So Burbage rallied the company and on December 28th, 1598, in the dead of winter, Shakespeare and his troupe took the theater down timber by timber, loaded it onto barges and ferried it across the Thames to a site on the opposite bank. The land was marshy, but Burbage had scouted it and had a plan for that, too. They dug trenches, filled them with limestone, laid down bricks, and then reconstructed the theater, renaming it The Globe. Burbage may not have known it, but he had just done the job of producing. And in that happy new setting, Shakespeare gave the world Julius Caesar, Henry V, As You Like It, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth. In 1613, during a performance of Henry VIII, a blast from a prop cannon set The Globe's roof on fire. The theater burned to the ground with one life lost. Again, Burbage rallied the company and the globe reopened after being rebuilt in an astonishing eight months. That is producing two. Shakespeare wrote 38 plays and 154 sonnets. According to Oxford's dictionary, he invented 3,000 words that we still use today, including addiction, birthplace, howl, jaded, laughable, Olympian, unsolicited, and zany. Among the expressions he invented are Love is Blind, Break the Ice, Into Thin Air, Cruel to be Kind, Heart of Gold, and, among the many gifts of Romeo and Juliet, What's in a Name? That's our focus for today, because it turns out names mean a lot. The bargaining unit that is currently being struck by two guilds in our town is called the AMPTP, or the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. But a petition now circulating in Hollywood is demanding that the Alliance change its name to the AMPTS for studios. The AMPTC for companies would also work. A look back at the career of Harry Cohn reveals why. Cohn, who built Columbia Pictures, went out of his way to fashion his reputation as a ruthless prick. He admired Mussolini and had his office constructed to be just like Il Duce's. He once said, everyone who walks in here is a prostitute. They wouldn't be here if they didn't want something. He had his sound stages bugged so he could hear if anyone was talking about him. And of his employees, he said, he who eats my bread sings my song he once tried to to hire jack warner jr just to upset jack warner senior but the driving obsession of his life was his envy of his fellow moguls mayor zucker the warners they were all richer than he was all better connected his office was in a stretch off sunset called poverty row he lacked the capital and clout to own theater chains as they did yet he was desperate to be their equal he decided that winning an oscar would achieve this and it became his sole fixation He would beat them by making better movies than they did. He would outproduce them. In pursuit of this, he nurtured and supported a young director named Frank Capra and gave Capra the kind of creative control no director had at the time, total backing. For his next film, Capra wanted Clark Gable. Cohn borrowed Gable from MGM. Capra wanted Claudette Colbert, who wanted a ton of money. Cohn paid it. Capra was uncompromising in his desire to make a movie that said the rich could learn a few things from the working class. Cone, greenlit at all. The result, it happened one night, changed Columbia forever. It won Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Sweeping those five had never been done before and has only been done twice since One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs. Cone had arrived, he mattered, but not enough. It was Capra who got the praise in town and it drove Cone crazy. Just hearing Capra's name began to infuriate him. Cone started saying things like, I made that picture, Capra just directed it, not very producery. Reeling, Cohn decided to wound Capra and he did. Columbia had a clunker of a movie called If You Could Only Cook. Cohn released it in Europe with Capra's name attached to it as the director. Capra learned of this and went nuts. A lawsuit followed. Capra refused to fulfill his contract. And you know what happened next? Capra became unhirable. Cohn rallied his fellow moguls and even though they despised him, they closed ranks. Talent that challenged management had to be taught a lesson, even if that talent had cause and Oscars. In that moment, Harry Cohn stopped being a producer and started being a company. Producers support artists. Producers put the movie first. That's why so many people think the Alliance is misnamed. How do we know the Alliance is composed of companies and not producers? Because the thing these negotiations need most is a producer. Think about it. Producers solve problems. They bring warring factions together routinely. They bridge battles between studios and filmmakers. They keep everyone on schedule. They make sure no one veers too far off script. They keep everybody aiming for the finish line while making everyone feel heard. Harry Cohn wound up losing his studio to his own board, seated in New York. As legendary director C.B. DeMille said, When studios operated on picture money, there was joy in the industry. When we operated on Wall Street money, there was only grief. That is where the companies are now answering to Wall Street and spreading grief. Producers didn't make that decision, corporations did. So what's in a name? Plenty. If companies are going to prize the price of their stock over the lives of their employees, if they're going to place short-term thinking over the health of our business, if they're going to make the whole state of California suffer to the tune of $3 billion when a deal can clearly be made, then they are not producers. And the name of their alliance should reflect that. What should it be called? Well, for that, I'd turn once again to Shakespeare, for one of those phrases only the Bard could have created, which speaks not only to the misnamed Alliance, but to us all. To thine own self be true. Producing is a job, and on every movie, someone has to do it. And on every movie, everyone knows the person who is doing it. Please meet someone who does it exceptionally well, Jennifer Fox. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So let's begin. The last time I had two producers on, Julie Lynn and Bonnie Curtis, the first question I asked them was, what is a producer? And they took nine minutes um, (laughs) to to define the job. So I'm gonna challenge you to do it in less than nine minutes. What do you think a producer is?
1: It's hard to sum up because if you're doing it well, it takes long to describe because you're literally into everything. No two films are ever the same. And since each has its own journey, and its own set of challenges, you're, you're constantly in triage mode. Um, so you need to stay focused on the tiny details while keeping an eye on the big picture. And by the big picture, I mean everything from the abstract, why are we making this? Who is this for? What's it really about? So the more mundane, you know, when the clock is running out and the money's thin, what's the priority? What do we need? But first and foremost, it's a, it's a creative job and a massive collaborative process And it's about melding one's taste and diplomacy to try and bring everyone's best work to the operation. And because it's such a massive collaboration, there's inevitably going to be conflict. And so as a producer, you want to create an environment that's ideal for everybody to bring their best game.
0: For me, as long as we're doing this podcast, everything always ties back to the strike and What I want to focus on most about the job of producing, and and I have my own very specific ideas about what that job is, but I felt from the beginning that this strike was not about fairness because most people in America feel that they are treated unfairly. The strike is about survival. The strike is about extinction. I felt that very strongly for writers and for actors. And the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I think that now applies to producers as well. The more independent producers that I talk to The more I hear them say things I never heard them say 10 years ago or even five years ago, Um, I hear them now saying, I'm not sure I can stay in this anymore. And that has a lot less to do with who gets the credit on a movie and a lot more to do with things like fee splitting. So I want to have a conversation about all of that as well. And I think it all funnels into this idea that everybody thinks they're a producer. And, and that because the studios don't hard line that, everybody gets paid from the same pot. And there are now more and more people reaching into that pot. And will this, will producing be a viable, survivable
1: job? It's absolutely true that it's become harder and harder in the 20 years that I've been doing it. There used to be um, a large number of term deals at studios or studio where producers had a home, and they had the ability to hire a staff, and there was also a place for younger producers to come up under the in the ranks. You could work for the large staff of Jerry Bruckheimer or the large staff of you know a, one of the giant producers and work your way up. You could. There's a, a long list of very talented producers who worked under Scott Rudin over the years who've gone on to do all kinds of other things. So it, um, that no longer exists for the most part. There are very few of those deals left. So there's no longer this place for producers to, you know, to incubate and to learn and to grow. So you, you are more likely now to start out on your own in an independent way and to kind of build your way up from there.
0: Once you start to direct, you get a very different perception of what a producer is um, because on a movie and you don't think about this when you're a writer who hasn't gotten movies made yet. But on an actual movie, when you're making something, there is a producer who has a fiduciary responsibility to bring that thing in um, on schedule and on budget, who has to make all kinds of decisions about that, who is looking at cost reports every night, whether you as the director are or not. And there is an argument to be made that the producer of the movie is the person who is contractually exclusive to that movie. What do producers think right now is the direction to go?
1: The producer's mark is not able to determine who is allowed to call themselves a producer on the credit of the movie. The mark is there to verify, according to the Producers Guild, who they determine has done the actual work. And there's a criteria. It is in, you know, it's, it's published. It's clear for anybody that wants to see it, what it is that the job is that they need to be able to do. And it's a majority of it's to, it's to be in a decision-making role for a majority of the, the aspects of producing and its development it's on set in production. It's post production. It's marketing. So it's soup to nuts all the way through, and there are there's a, a formula that can give you the producing credit without even being on set in some cases because you may be the kind of producer who is um, I'm I'm an on set producer, but there are very successful producers who um qualify for the mark who are not on set who are but are very very involved throughout covid was an example too of you know a lot of producers had to go home and couldn't be on set because they were you know it was it was down to a minimum of who absolutely had to be there and could you watch dailies from home and and do your job the determination was yes you could and so the on set part of it is is It's huge to the way that I do it, but is also kind of not part of the official criteria, because if you are able to get a majority of the um, areas without being on set, you can still qualify for that mark.
0: Let's try this as a scenario. You find a book that you love and you option it and you go out and you get a writer and you both realize this is just not studio fair and you develop it and the writer writes it on spec and you guys have partnered in that way and it takes three years and you're giving notes on draft after draft. Okay. So on that level, you are clearly functioning as a producer. So you guys make a dream list of directors and you go after a director and the director says, yeah, I love this script. I'm in, um, guess what? I'm a producer. And you say, oh, okay. And the director says, oh, and I have a producing partner, and she's a producer too. So you develop it a little bit more, and you go and you set it up at a studio with this director who's attached, okay? And the studio says, here's our dream actress. And you go get that actress, and she says, I love this. I'm in. I'm a producer. And I have a producing partner, and she's also a producer. So now there are five producers on this, but there's only the one producing pot. It's not like the producing pot keeps getting bigger. Right. Yes. And by the way, somewhere along the line, the man, the, the manager of the writer could say, well, I'm a producer. And the writer yes. might say, well, that works for me too because then I won't get commissioned Yes. Um, by the manager. So now you have six producers sharing from that same pot. How do you make a living off of one sixth of the producing pot, especially since you are an onset set producer, um, and that studio may say to you, you're the one who's going to be the fiduciary. You're going to be the one looking at the cost reports. You're the one that we trust to actually execute the movie. So you're going to be there for casting. You're going to be there for rewriting. You're going to be there um, while sets are being built. You're going to know where the trucks are parked, um, and you're going to be there all the way through post, but your fee has now been split into a sixth. How do you survive on the one-sixth? It's, it's a question writers have been asking for three years, which is why we're all walking around in circles with a stick.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and it's an enormous problem. And at the end of the day, everyone usually knows within the unit from the studio who the responsible producer is. And by that, I mean everyone else could be very responsible human beings, but the person who's responsible for thinking about it as a whole and doesn't have the specific agenda of their the person that they're advocating for. That the interests of the actor may be slightly different than the interests of the film as a whole. The notes may be more about giving that actor more scenes as opposed to what works for the movie as a whole. The, um, so everybody tends to come in with a kind of very specific agenda as a collaborator. And they absolutely should. I mean, that's, that's what I don't, I mean, it is a very collaborative process and, and we have highly, highly skilled craftspeople in all departments, but someone needs to be thinking about what's best for this as a whole and in a way that as diplomatically as possible, making peace between all of these various interests. And it tends to be that producer that is the, you know, the really day-to-day working producer who's ultimately responsible, who's also ultimately responsible for the health and safety of everyone on the set. If something, God forbid, were to happen, not through even anyone's fault, but if there were an accident or a the, the producer who is um, the the responsible producer tends to be the one who is most liable, who it's really on the line for. And, um, and so you're taking all of the risk, but you're, but you're sharing in the benefits, not only in credit, but also, yeah, part of the participation.
0: You're putting together a $7 million movie that's going to shoot in a, in a rebate state. Um, and there's going to be some fee built in there that's going to be for you. Uh, and then all of a sudden, director wants to share in the producing pool and star says, I'm the one who got a green lit. I'm a producer now. Is there a moment there where you can say, well, no, this is my fee. Or you can somehow get the financier to, to kick to to give you breakage, uh, the equivalent of breakage on producing fees.
1: You can attempt to do that, but the nature of it is that you've probably been working on this for 10 years or five years, and you just want to see it happen. I have made films and have made zero dollars because I've given it all away. I've literally worked as a nonprofit and just put it behind. And yes, in success, somewhere down the waterfall, in theory, I could have been paid something, but um, I didn't know. I, I never saw that. So uh, because it was so far back, even on films that were um, commercially successful, the you're you're pushed back so far that it it never hits.
0: So this comes back to the survivability issue, which is why for me it's totally tied to the strike. Um, Studios uh, and, and financiers can help you here, but they have to voluntarily help you. And that is because you don't have a collective bargaining unit um, that can provide some sort of minimums, some sort of guardrails for you. So why is there no such thing?
1: What I've been told is that it's because producers are considered managers and because we are hiring the crew and hiring other people to build the machine that is a specific production. Um, we're considered in a management role. However, we are employees of the financier. We are, we are work for hire of the financier. Sometimes um, we could be in a position that we're raising money on our own, or we're putting it on our credit cards, or we're mortgaging, putting a second mortgage on our house to bridge something for a period of time. But um, we're falling into a category that doesn't allow us to unionize.
0: In what ways can the PGA protect you?
1: PGA is a trade organization. it is not a union. So um, that is not to disparage the PGA. It's just that they don't have the power to offer um, these kinds of requirements of studios they They have had conversations with certain studios to say, will you um, will you contribute to health care?" on a project-by-project basis for producers, and some have agreed to that. Um, But it's project-to-project, it's not guaranteed.
0: So much of this is about, as I said, survivability. Um, Writers are asking, can they stay in this and sustain a living? Actors are asking, asking, can we stay in this? I, I wanted to make it clear the producers are asking those same questions of themselves as well. Obviously, there are different stages of a movie, and producers function differently in those stages. How do we create a credit that accurately reflects how important it is to develop material with the writer before anyone's getting paid anything versus being the person who is actually contractually exclusive to that movie?
1: It's very hard to define that because every film has a very different journey and, um, and so I think it needs to be looked at case by case in each instance. I don't think that you can have a blanket rule for every film.
0: Okay. Does the producer's mark sometimes put you in a position where you have to compete with the actor in your movie or with the director in your movie, uh, which are relationships that are not only meaningful to you personally, but meaningful to you professionally.
1: There is a sense of fairness and what's the sense of responsibility. I I would I would never put an actor who needs to perform in the position of understanding the day to day problems of that that are going on behind the scenes. It would be a wild distraction. It would not be what's best for the film. And so so you need to keep people involved in a way that also protects the film. And so it's, I think by its nature, um, there needs to be someone who is primarily responsible for the film and their job, and they don't wear another hat because that other hat will always get in in the way of the kind of the need to know everything all the time. And I work very closely with directors who I keep, who I have, repeat business with and I'm, and our dear friends. And I feel trust me completely because I keep them in the know as much as they need to know in the moment without distracting them from what they need to be focused on to make the day.
0: My father, who was a literary agent for 32 years, a great one, um, used to grumble to me, everybody who can scratch his name on a shit house wall thinks he's a writer. Um, and, and I think that, was true at, at an early point in my career. But I would now say everybody thinks they're a producer. Um, it's the easiest credit to give away. If you're the studio, it's it's, um, it's the easiest way to placate somebody uh, because it's the hardest job to define.
1: If you're taking a fee from another bucket in the film as in your other role as a hyphen it, then i think that's something to take into consideration it shouldn't all come out of the one producer pot i don't know how you can leverage this without a union without the ability to strike and i and I, I don't know that um i i just i don't i don't see how it can the mechanism that could make this work it all works producer credits all work with leverage and so If you need an actor to be in your movie to make your movie go and they want the credit, then then everybody wants that because everyone wants to make their movie. So you say yes.
0: Credits should be determined by contribution, not by leverage. And the more I get to know producers and the more I understand the contributions that great producers make in terms of, again, just thinking of it as a job. That they are there for casting. They're there for scouting. They're there for all the drawings and all the designs. They they literally know where the trucks are parked. They're getting the weather reports. They're trying to figure out how to maximize the day. They're talking to the AD constantly. They're talking to the DP about moving things along. They're helping the director in every way possible. Just They're producing. Um, they should be known as the producer of the movie, in my view. And, and anyone who gets there, who gets a producing credit by means of leverage, as opposed to contribution, I just think that has to be in some way that has to be recognized. It has to be um, codified.
1: So what you do, what most producers do is you bring them into the tent, you embrace it, you embrace it and you, as much as possible, make, make them your collaborators. Okay. And um,
0: that works creatively. But have you ever had a circumstance in which you said to the director and the director's producing partner, hey, love this idea of you producing this with me. That would be great. We're all going to be partners. I need to make a living. So can we negotiate something about the fee since you're still making your directing fee and your producing partner has a job? All I have is this fee. Can you take the credit and do the work? but let me have the lion's share of the producing pot. Have you ever ma- had that conversation?
1: Yes. And and I have effectively had that conversation. That has worked.
0: There may be a huge studio movie in which 11 writers wind up participating, um, but all those writers get paid. They may not get paid enough, and that may be part of why we're on strike, but they all get paid. There are cases where you develop something for two or three years and never get paid, Um, where it goes off and gets made without you, and your years of development have yielded you nothing.
1: How do we protect against that? There used to be development fees worked in that have gone away, they could come back. Um, Paying producers to do the work that they do to tee things up, to to make them exist could be a part of it. In addition to a development, piece, even, even a kind of between development and launch, some other period of there's a there's a lot of R&D that we have to do um, in building. How is something feasible? I have I have a project now in which I'm trying to figure out, is there an LED screen approach? Or should it be a practical approach or should it be a hybrid between the two? I'll spend months trying to figure that out and I'm not going to get paid until I have a plan and I'm able to make the movie. So and that's very different than the work that you do in developing the script. So all of these things, you but but I'm paying a visual effects supervisor to come up with that plan.
0: You are personally paying that person? Yeah. Okay. So you're, you have skin in the game in a completely different way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm optioning material. I'm paying line producers to do budgets. I'm putting out my own money frequently before I even have a financier. And sometimes those things come to be. And sometimes it's like you writing a spec script that doesn't always sell. It's you're working largely on spec for long periods of time, but until something goes, you're not paid until you have your green light.
0: In one of those uh, circumstances in which there is one studio pot and lots of producers are reaching in to try to get their piece of it, um, have you ever gotten help from the studio or backing from the studio? Uh, by that I mean where they step in and say, no, 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 Jennifer Fox is the person who we're actually contractually. Uh, obligating to produce this movie. She should get more of this pot than you should, manager of writer, or you should, producing partner of director. Do studios ever step in and delineate in that way?
1: Yes. I I think a studio can look at it that way. It's still, there's still a finite amount. And so it's, it's not always equally divided.
0: So what I keep hearing you say is that um, every one of these is case by case and that it's hard to institute blanket rules. Give me an example of
1: how a blanket rule could be harmful. You might have a financier who is interested in in putting high risk money into a film because they, they hope to have an Oscar. And so, if you make a blanket rule that says that you're, if you're a producer whose role is to be a financier, that they can't have a capital P producer credit or a statue, you're going to de incentivize many people who would otherwise be willing to take that, again, very high risk investment. Um, You might lose a whole pool of investors and then opportunities for a number of. Very difficult films to be made
0: have you ever produced for a streamer? Yes, what did your deal look like when you made something for a streamer um, do you, have you ever seen any secondary income from anything you made for a streamer or was everything paid to you up front and there has and there's no afterlife to it
1: um there was a there was a buyout that was um, that brought me to a place that would be equal to what my studio fee would be. It wasn't, um, it wasn't paying me for the potential for success, buying out potential success. It was, it was making me whole.
0: And obviously there's, there's no participation down the line. Um, Correct. Right. Correct. So nothing, nothing, the, nothing, that would be the equivalent of what a writer makes, uh, in a residual.
1: They gave us a, um, they gave us a a piece of, uh, you know, the back end was um, looked at as something that we could allocate ourselves. And we ended up putting most of it into the film by our own choice. So rather than pay ourselves a bigger buyout, we would say we'd like to have, you know, more cast, more visual effects, more. And so it was all put on screen for the most part.
0: So in effect, you're co-financing the movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we, um, we made the choice to do that. However, we could have said to ourselves, we'd prefer to pay ourselves, but what we chose to do was to put it in, put it on screen because our priority was the movie.
0: And, uh, there was no reaction from the streamer along the lines of gosh, gosh, we're really ashamed you had to do that. We're going to give you a little more money because you shouldn't have to.
1: No, no,
0: no. Ah, that's interesting. All right, so this is where we're going to leave it. Um, let's pretend for a second that you're lecturing at UCLA um, in their film program. And mm-hmm. the lecture goes great. And uh, a 22-year-old Jennifer Fox comes up to you and says, I want to make independent films. I want to make that my living. I'm so inspired by what you've done. I want to make $4 million impossible movies. What should I do? What would you tell her?
1: I need to think about this for a minute because it's, um, unless they have a trust fund and I do not, it's, it's really hard. Uh, I don't, I don't know that it's a viable thing to do, honestly.
0: Are we pushing ourselves into a position where the only people who can be producers are people who are independently wealthy?
1: Um, yes. Yes. To start out, yes. Yeah.
0: Won't that have a, a dramatic impact on the kind of stories that they choose to tell?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: We'll leave it there. When Harry Cohn died in 1958, his funeral was the largest in Hollywood history. The crowd was enormous. Comedian Red Skelton explained it by saying, well, give the public what it wants. I know a lot of producers and there isn't a Harry Cohn among them. They're more like Jennifer Fox, which means they're more like writers than anything else. They want to tell stories and they've dedicated their lives to doing so. And like writers, they're employees. They get hired to do a job. That job requires creativity, vision, taste, resilience, determination, patience, energy, Optimism, realism, pragmatism, strength, charm, an ability to forgive slights, a mastery of economics, and sometimes of engineering. And as we've just heard, the job they do is becoming increasingly difficult, and yet they keep doing it, just like us. And to help us, if the theater has to be moved across the river, they find a way to move it. If it burns to the ground, they rebuild it. That's their job. So again, no, they're not the people that we're striking against. By any name, in word and deed, they're our partners. They're not in an alliance, but they should be in a union. I want to thank my guest, Jennifer Fox, and my producer, Ben Bloom. Please join us next week when our guests will be Robert Evans, Walter Wanger, and David O. Selznick. This is Strike Talk.